0: Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garton. Shavuot, which comes 50 days after the holiday of Passover, is the last major holiday in the Jewish calendar cycle until Rosh Hashanah in the fall. One would think, therefore, that in this period of two or three months, there would be very little of interest in the Torah to read about. But of course, the exact opposite is true. While most of us who listen to this show recognize that the Jewish cycle of Torah readings repeats itself every year and that we are now in the book of Numbers, most recognize that the stories we have learned as children about creation, about Abraham, about Moses, about the receiving of the Ten Commandments received a great deal of significance and teaching. But buried within the fourth book of the Torah, the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, are four consecutive Torah portions that offer unbelievable stories and are ripe for interpretation. The story of Korach teaches about the rebellion of Korach and his priestly co-conspirators against Moses and Aaron. The story of Balak teaches us about the king Balak and his sorcerer, Bilaam, who are expected to curse the Israelites. And lo and behold, through the agency of a talking donkey, Bilaam and Balak, come to praise the Jewish people, and their psalm of praise finds its way into the morning service of every Jewish synagogue. And the fourth story, third story, is the story of Pinchas, the individual who is so committed to God that he appears to commit murder. The fourth story is not named after an individual. It's named Hukat, which usually translates as the ritual law. But buried within this story of ritual law is a story that some of you may be familiar with. And I'm going to read to you chapter 20 of the book of Numbers. The Israelites arrived in a body at the wilderness of Zin on the first new moon, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. The community was without water, and they joined against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses, saying, if only we had perished with our brothers in the instance of the Lord, referring back to the story of Korah. Why have you brought the Lord's congregation into the wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us to this wretched place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? There is not even water to drink. Moses and Aaron came away from the congregation to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell upon their faces The presence of God appeared to them, and God spoke to Moses, saying, You and your brother Aaron take the rod. Assemble the community, and before their very eyes order the rock to yield its waters. Thus you shall produce water for them from the rock, and provide drink for the congregation and their beasts. Moses took the rod from before God as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock, and he said to them, listen, you rebels, shall we get water out of this rock? And Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Out came copious water, and the community and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people, therefore you shall not lead this congregation into the lands that I have given them. Those are the waters of Meribah, meaning that the Israelites quarreled with God through which he affirmed his sanctuary and his sanctity. The waters of of Ba, the waters of strife are the most famous and enigmatic stories of the Torah you just heard the entirety of the story but here it is in a brief synopsis there's a water crisis and God commands to Moses to draw water from the rock Moses fails to sanctify God's name as commanded and strikes the rock instead. God punishes him by not allowing him to the land of Israel. Can you imagine? Moses, the man who has led the people of Israel through the wilderness for nearly 40 years, for one moment of disobedience, is denied the opportunity to enter the promised land with the people of Israel. The exact chain of events, what Moses' wrongdoing was, and a host of other details are unclear. And the story of Moses hitting the rock has baffled many a student of Jewish biblical studies for thousands of years. So let me recount the story and analyze the explanation of the classic commentators and interpret the story for you. So here's the context as it's understand, but understood by Jewish tradition. In the year 2488 from creation, the way the ancient Hebrews counted, The 40th year of Jews sojourn in the desert, nearing the end of their journey, Miriam the prophetess, of which I'll say more later, and sister of Moses, died. With her passing, according to Jewish tradition, the rock that supplied the Jews, Israelites with water, dried up. The Israelites had this miraculous well in Miriam's merit. So when she passed on and died, the well ran dry and the Jews were left in the desert without water. This was, of course, not the first time the Jews had no water. It is actually the third time the Torah records such a story. The first time was when the Jews were fresh out of Egypt. They arrived in a place called Marah, where the water was bitter. God told Moses to throw a bitter tree branch into the water, and it made the water drinkable. It miraculously sweetened the water, and lo and behold, the Israelites had an opportunity to satisfy their thirst. That first episode is found in Exodus 15, 22. The second time was shortly after the first in Exodus 17.1, when the Jews were in Riphidim and also ran out of water. Moses again called on God for help, and this time, instead of throwing a tree branch into bitter water— God commanded Moses to strike a particular rock with his staff. The rock split open and water gushed forth. According to tradition, this became known as Miriam's well. For the miracle, according to the rabbis, was done in her merit. For 40 years, the rock traveled with the people and served them faithfully, providing water for them and their animals. It's tributaries serving as borders between the tribes when they camped. That, of course, is a Midrash from the Midrash known as Tanchuma written about our Torah portion. I've read to you the story now of what happens. This story that you've heard from Numbers 20 requires a lot of explanation. God told Moses to speak to the rock, so why did he also tell him to pick up the staff? Also, what did Moses mean when he said, can we draw water for you from this rock? The Jews had watched him bring water from a rock for 40 years, and God had just commanded him to do precisely that. Why the hesitation in this story? Additionally, as you heard in my reading from Numbers 20, why did Moses call the Jews rebels? And why did he strike the rock twice? The classical medieval commentator Rashi fills in some of the important background information. Now, remember... Rashi is a commentator, trying to explain the inexplicable, but to make sense for his readers. So according to Rashi, God told Moses to speak to the rock. But the rock had rolled away and rested among other rocks. Moses didn't know to which rock he should speak, and the one he chose to address first was the wrong one. Nothing happened and the Jewish people began to mock Moses, according to Rashi's interpretation, demanding that he draw raw water from any rock. Moses grew angry at their lack of faith and called them rebels for insinuating that he had the power to perform a miracle where God had not willed it, namely to pick a rock other than the one God had specified. When speaking did not produce results, Moses remembered that 40 years previously, God had commanded him to hit the rock to draw water. And this time Moses remembered God had also instructed him to take his staff with him. He therefore reasoned that he should strike the rock. Meanwhile, the wrong stone rolled away and the correct one rolled back into place. Thus, when Moses' staff came down, it was on the right rock, the one that God had pointed out, the stone of Miriam. The first time he struck it, only droplets appeared. So Moses struck it again, and then water gushed forth. I want to remind you that these are only interpretations, fanciful interpretations, by Rashi, the medieval commentator of northern France. At this stage in the story, everything seems pretty standard. No, peop, no water, people complain, Moses prays, God performs a miracle. Seems like just a regular day for the Jews in the desert. But the next verse, verse 12, is where things start to take a turn. I'll read it for you again. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Since you have no faith in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring these people to the land which I have given them. These are the waters of dispute, where the children of Israel contended with God. They strove, they argued, and he was sanctified, he meaning God, through them. In an instant, we can imagine that Moses and Aaron's dreams were crushed. Their life goal to bring the Jews to the promised land dissolved to dust. Why? Of what sin were they guilty, and why such a harsh punishment? In the thousands of years that the Torah has been studied, Tens of, if not hundreds of interpretations have been offered on this story. This morning, I want to offer you a few of those classical interpretations. As mentioned before, Rashi commonly accepted the explanation that Moses hit the rock when God instructed him to speak to it. God specifically wanted him to speak to the rock so that the Jewish people would realize that even an inanimate rock listens to the words of God. How much more so should the people of Israel? They would have been inspired. They would never have sinned again. Moses disobeyed God, hit the rock, and an opportunity to glorify God was missed. Therefore, Moses and Aaron were punished. Some commentators, including the last Lubavitch Rebbe, Menachem Schneerson, who died 25 years ago, believe that their sin was due to the public nature of their infraction, saying that the reason the sin was treated so severely was because it happened publicly. And although they committed a minor infraction, says Rabbi Schneerson, Moses and Aaron were punished severely because they desecrated God's name before the eyes of all. Now, Nachmanides, also a medieval uh, commentator, understands that since God told Moses to take the stick, there was no problem with him hitting the rock. The miracle was to be accomplished through either medium, speaking or hitting it. Rather, Moses and Aaron's sin, according to Rabbi Nachmanides, was what they said in verse 8, can we draw water for you from this rock, implying that they had the power to perform the miracle and not that their power came from God. Nachmanides supports his explanation with God's opening words to Moses, because you did not believe in me, implying that this was a failure of faith rather than a lapse of obedience or a surrender to anger. Nachmanides' compatriot Maimonides of the 11th century has an altogether different take on the story. His explanation is that Moses' sin was his anger. The Jews were distressed over a lack of water, a justifiable concern. Moses' anger and his brandishing them rebels was wrong, and therefore he was punished. Now, Ibn Ezra, an Italian commentator, explains that Moses was supposed to hit the rock only once and the water would have flowed, even if he hadn't spoken to the rock. The problem was that Moses got angry so that he did not hit the rock in the manner he was supposed to in order for the water to actually forth issue fourth, he was forced to hit it a second time, this time correctly. The necessity to hit the rock twice was a desecration of God's name, so he was punished. Basing it on the four expressions of God's rebuke, The Midrash Yal-Kuchmoni, a more modern collection of stories, learns that Moses was capable at this moment of—was culpable for four sins at the same time. He hit the rock when he should have spoken to it. He should have brought water from all the rocks as well. He said, can we draw water for you from this? And God wanted him to say words of Torah over the water, and he did not. Now remember, each of these explanations is trying to help us understand from the commentator's perspective why Moses and Aaron should be so severely punished. These leaders who had given their life to moving the Israelites from slavery and servitude to Pharaoh, to the desert and servitude for God, were punished with the most extreme form of punishment, not death, but the refusal to see the promised land other than from the mountains. Let's go on because the analysis of the depth of this sin does not end there. Joseph Albo, in his book, Sefer Ha'ikarim, writes that a tzaddik, a righteous person, has the ability to affect the elements and manipulate the forces of nature according to his will. Therefore, when the Jews came to Moses demanding water, Moses should not have prayed to God. He should have struck the rock on his own volition. Because he did not, He caused people to lessen their opinion of tzaddikim, which in turn made them lessen their opinion of God, so he was punished. For those of you who are not clear about what a tzaddik is, a tzaddik is not just a rabbi. A tzaddik is a righteous person who, by virtue of his faith, not just his learning, but of his faith— and by the power of his personality, brings people to God. And therefore, according to Joseph Albo, Moses being a tzaddik should have been able to bring forth water on his own. But he prayed to God for help, and therefore doing that, he showed the people that even a tzaddik might have a lack of faith. And so his sin was lessening the people's understanding of the power of a Tzaddik. a Spanish commentator of the 15th century, writes the following. He takes issue with all these explanations, pointing out the flaws in each one of them, as we could as well. One of his primary concern is that whatever way one learns the story— Moses' and Aaron's sin, according to the Torah, was not enough to warrant them being barred entry into the land. He, therefore, takes a very unique approach, saying that Moses' and Aaron's sin was not particularly terrible. And that would be the simple reading of the text. They merely made a mistake. However, God did not want them entering the land for other reasons— Moses because he sent the spies and Aaron because of his involvement with the sin of the golden calf. God, according to Abravanel, wanted to protect Moses and Aaron's honor. So he pretended that the rock was the reason for their punishment to cover up the true reason. Now, one of... The most important Hasidic rabbis of the second generation writes a very unusual explanation. This rabbi, known as the Rogacho Vergaon, Joseph Rosen, the Rogacho Vergaon, meaning genius, writes the following. Totally different than all the other commentators, and he writes in the late 18th century from his perspective as the second generation of Hasidic rabbis. In addition to drinking, the Jews needed water of the well to serve as a mikveh, a ritual immersion pool. The laws of nida, ritual purity, dictate that once a month, a woman must separate from her husband for a period of time. After the seven days, she immerses in a mikveh, and only then is the couple permitted to be physically together again. One of the many laws of mikvah states that when drawing water from a stream or well to a mikvah, any tool that is susceptible to becoming impure may not be used. Only vessels that could never become impure a stone may be used in directing the water flow. Otherwise, this ritual immersion pool is invalid. The rock Gaon explains that Moses' sin was that he took the wrong stick. God wanted him to hit the rock with his own stick, but in his humility, Moses thought God meant Aaron's stick. Whereas Moses' stick was made of precious stone, Aaron's was wood. Wood is susceptible, according to ancient Jewish law, to becoming impure, so that when Moses hit the rock with Aaron's stick, the water that flowed from the rock was not kosher from a mikveh. Until a few months later, when the Jews found a different water source that was kosher for mikveh, Jewish couples were not able to be physically intimate with each other. This breakdown in the family was Moses' fault, and therefore he was punished. This explanation is certainly even more unusual than the previous medieval commentators. But what I've shared with you this morning and I will offer some concluding commentary, is an attempt for you, the listener, to understand how Midrash works and how its goal is to fill in the gaps that exist in the Torah portion. The questions that can't be answered on a face value basis. Why was Moses punished? The simple answer is he hit the rock and disobeyed God. But did the punishment fit the crime? Is it possible, these commentators suggest, that there were unknown parts of the story that led to this severe punishment? Now, notwithstanding the above explanation, one remains clear. Why did Moses, the greatest prophet and great Man, disobey God. Obviously, such a man would not sin out of spite or rebellion. Therefore, one more commentary. The rock represents Torah. Had Moses spoken and not hit the rock, the Jews would not have had to toil in the study of Torah. Moses hitting the rock caused the Torah to descend from its place of purity and exaltedness and descend into the falsehood of this world. Striking the rock caused the Torah's light to become concealed, making it difficult to connect with God. Well, that, my friends and listeners, is certainly a mystical understanding. Seven different ways that Jews have through the ages interpreted this very interesting story, and we didn't even get to speak about the death of Miriam, which has led to a myriad of different interpretations. The Torah, a book which always surprises us. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a rebroadcast of this morning's show on iTunes as a podcast or on the CHRI 99.1 website. Shalom and good morning. Oh